the Apostle Paul has told us that the church is the household of God and the pillar and support of the truth. And we know that here at Calvary Bible Church, the five pillars or the five primary areas that we are committed to support this local church. As we have studied thus far, they are expository preaching, Christ-exalting song worship, sharing the gospel of God's sovereign grace, personal discipleship, and the fifth pillar, prayer, the one that I will be addressing this morning, disciplined, fervent, private, and persistent prayer. The goal of our prayer ministry is to help men and women in disciplined, fervent, private, and persistent prayer. And as you may know, uh, our elder Ken Kerr is in charge of this particular pillar. And before I list some of the specific objectives that he, along with the rest of the elders, have in this regard, I wish to take you to a passage of Scripture in Colossians, a passage that, that focuses our attention on, the most imp- on this most important topic of prayer. So, so if you will, take your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14. Here we will see the Holy Spirit revealing through his inspired apostle a prayer concerning seven virtues. Seven virtues that he wants for the saints at Colossae that he would like to see manifested in each one of us in every New Testament church. I might add that this is my pattern of prayer that I use often when I pray for each of you, even when I pray for myself. There is much gold to be mined in these precious veins. Due to time, we'll only be able to dig out a few nuggets. I hope you will return there often to find more. But this certainly captures the passion that we as elders have regarding to this fifth pillar of Calvary Bible Church. Now, before we look at the text, let me remind you of the context. There was a man by the name of Epaphras who was responsible for planting this church in Colossae, which was a city in Phrygia uh, in the Roman province of of Asia, uh, which, by the way, would be a part of... uh, Turkey today, modern Turkey. We know that 100 miles from this particular town, the Apostle Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. And we believe that Epaphras was saved during a visit to Ephesus, and then he returned home to preach the gospel to his family and friends, and he established the church there at Colossae. Now, unfortunately, That church was plagued with a very dangerous heresy that contained elements of what would later be called Gnosticism. You've probably heard of that before, that God who is spirit is good, but matter is evil. 
uh, that Jesus Christ was merely one of a series of emanations descending from God, uh, but he was less than God, and they had a belief, therefore, that led them to really deny uh, his true humanity and his true deity and so forth. They believed that you had to have a secret, uh, higher knowledge of Scripture, or I should say of philosophy, which would be higher than Scripture in order to, shall we say, be reconciled to God, in order to somehow be spiritual. And they also embraced certain aspects of Jewish legalism, uh, the, the, even the worship of angels. They, they had lots of mystical experiences. So you can imagine all of this stuff being brought in to this church. Well, Epaphras was very concerned about all of this, and rightfully so. So he traveled a very long distance to Rome to find the Apostle Paul, who no doubt had been his spiritual father, and he found him in a Roman prison. Paul hears the story of the progress of these dear saints, and his heart overflows with joy, which leads him to a renewed commitment to intercede on their behalf. Thus, the prayer that we are about to examine. Then later in this epistle, he gives very practical doctrinal instruction to the people there pertaining to Christ and the danger of all of these false philosophies. He gives very practical exhortations regarding Christian conduct, regarding how we should conduct our houses, how we should be devoted to prayer, how our speech needs to be, our families and friends, that type of thing. So, with this in mind, we come to this sevenfold prayer for these virtues that he longs to see in their lives, that the Spirit of God longs to see in our lives, that your pastor and the elders long to see in their lives and your lives. And here we see this glorious burden, oh, that we would have similar hearts, that we would pray for ourselves and pray for others with such passion and precision. Let me read the text to you. Colossians 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, referring to their salvation and the establishment of their church, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As we look at this petition, we see him pleading for Seven virtues which really make up the outline that we will look at here this morning. He's praying, number one, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Number two, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Three, that they would please him in all respects. Four, 
that they would bear fruit in every good work. Five, increase in the knowledge of God. Six, be strengthened with all power. And finally, number seven, joyously give thanks to the Father. Now again, time will only allow us to mine a few of the golden nuggets from these veins, but uh, we will do all that we can. I do want to save time to describe more of this fifth pillar so that you understand it. Notwithstanding the time constraints, I'm confident we will all come away rejoicing as we look at this text more closely. So let's do that. His first petition has to do with being filled with the knowledge of his will. Notice verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Filled carries the idea of being totally controlled. We can see the term used in other passages. There are times when we read of a person that's filled with sorrow or filled with fear, filled with rage, filled with the Holy Spirit. And here he's praying that the saints would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, what is this knowledge? Well, the term in the original has to do with a full and accurate knowledge as opposed to a superficial and perhaps errant knowledge. A knowledge of his will. In other words, to have a full and accurate understanding of the revealed will of God that is set forth in his word that teaches us to know how to relate to him, how to relate to one another, to live for his glory rather than our own, how to function in this world, how to treat others, uh, how to view the world, how to understand our enemies, how to understand our flesh, how to understand Satan, how to understand God's plan of redemption and the glories to come and so on and so forth. Now, sadly, rather than having a full and accurate knowledge, too many believers have a shallow and inaccurate knowledge of his will. Often we can be influenced by false teachers, uh, by our culture, by uh, ignorant family members. I run across people all the time who are confused about Bible doctrine. In fact, I was speaking to some people the other day their church leadership says, we've got to find a new pastor, but we want to make sure we don't get one that focuses on doctrine because all that does is divide. Well, you know what? They're exactly right. It divides between truth and error. Unfortunately, they don't understand that. They do not have a full and accurate understanding of the Word of God, of His will and all spiritual wisdom and so forth. There are people that don't understand some of the topics of our day, abortion, homosexuality, how to discipline our children, people that don't understand what God has to say with respect to how we are to treat each other, even in the church, how we are to love our spouses. So Paul is unceasing in his prayer here that they be filled with the knowledge of his will, and then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's interesting the terms spiritual wisdom here speaks of the ability to synthesize and to embrace biblical truth. And the term understanding has a little different shade of meaning. 
it speaks of the ability to apply these truths to our everyday living. This is what he's praying for. And we will see this same prayer in a number of passages throughout the New Testament, especially with the Apostle Paul. For example, in Philippians 1.9, he says, This I pray, that, you, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, practically speaking, here at Calvary Bible Church, it is our privilege and it is our responsibility to provide for you an environment whereby you will be constantly immersed in the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We don't want you to be seduced by Satan. We don't want you to be enticed by your own lust. We don't want you to be deceived by your own heart. We don't want you to be duped by the pretentious false claims of false teachers. We don't want you to be hoodwinked by the armchair theology of well-meaning but often ignorant parents and friends and pastors and church groups and Bible schools and so on. We want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, my friends, this should be a priority in our prayers. Unfortunately, too often it's not. In fact, many times when we ask for prayer requests, we will have a list that includes a lot of many good things, but very seldom does it include things like this. That is really the priority. Now, it's appropriate to pray for Aunt Maud's gout. And it's appropriate to pray for Uncle Hershey's drinking problem. It's appropriate to pray that our friends and loved ones come to Christ. It's appropriate to pray for a better job. But folks, we must not neglect to pray for our own spiritual weaknesses and the weaknesses of all of the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ because they are many. And so you see this here with the Apostle Paul. We must be unceasing in our prayer for one another. Paul says in Ephesians 6 and verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So we echo Paul's request here, his prayer, that God will cause all of us to have a full and accurate comprehension of the truths of Scripture. Why? Well, because of the second virtue that he prays for, that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, this speaks of God-glorifying character and conduct rather than the self-willed character and conduct that we are so prone to manifest in our lives. His passion is that they be and we be controlled by God's will, not our own will, not our parents' will, not our friends' or culture's will, not the will of political correctness. So this speaks of heart attitudes. It speaks of how we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that accurately reflects our new nature 
that accurately reflects our love for Christ, our love for His Word, our love for fellow believers, our love for the lost, and so on. So this is a conscious striving to be pleasing to Him in our words, our thoughts, and our deeds, while at the same time celebrating grace, knowing that God is ultimately pleased with us because we are hidden in His beloved Son. We are commanded, for example, in Galatians 5, to walk by the Spirit so that we won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. And when we do that, we see that the Spirit does something. He causes us to bear fruit. Ultimately, this is all a work of the Spirit as He empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Our salvation is all of grace from start to finish, but we are exhorted to live in practice, who we are in position, lest we forfeit blessing in our lives here on earth and perhaps even forfeit reward in heaven. But we are promised that it is Christ who will keep us from stumbling and make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You know, I think about these things uh, when I, whenever I read of these prayers and read of the exhortations of the things that the Spirit of God would have me do. And I've, I'm sure you're the, you feel the same way. It's like, Lord, I, I, I am trying, and yet I'm so thankful that ultimately Christ is all, and God is pleased with me in him. That is grace. But that does not excuse us. We still must, as we say here, strive to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And because of this, we see that something else is going to happen. When, this, when we do this, we see this third virtue that Paul goes on to describe in verse 10, to please him in all respects. 1 Corinthians 10.31, remember Paul says that whether you eat whether you drink or whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God. This is the idea. Now, I would ask you, is this a common prayer in your prayer life that you would be pleasing to him in all respects? Sometimes it's good for us to get the rubber to meet the road, as we might say. Look at your life for a second. Are you a person that is content or are you a complainer? Are you critical of others or do you seek their best interest? Do you keep a record of wrongs or do you overlook transgressions? Are you easily offended or are you patient when wrong? Are you quick to forgive or are you quick to get even? Do you seek opportunities to exalt yourself? Or do you regard others as more important than yourself? Do you merely look out for your own own personal interests or do you look out for the interests of others? These are the types of things that we have to examine in our heart because obviously one pleases the Lord in all respects, the other does not. So folks, we need to make this a priority in our prayer life. So Paul is praying, let's keep the whole picture here, he's praying for a full and accurate knowledge of the will of God, which will result in full and accurate obedience 
in our daily walk so that we will be pleasing to him. And this leads to the fourth virtue that will ultimately follow the previous three, and that is that we bear fruit in every good work. Notice how he puts it there in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. The idea here is that of spiritual service. Now, let's remember, as believers, we are all united to Christ. Uh, Jesus has made this clear, for example, in John 15. He says that, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So indeed, we are in Christ. And in some mysterious way, he is also in us. We are inextricably and eternally, supernaturally bonded together. And our union with him is the basis of our salvation. It is the basis of all of the blessings that we receive. And it is the source of our spiritual power to do what Paul is praying for right here. And that is to bear fruit in every good work. Now, bear in mind that good works are the fruit of not the root of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, as we look at Scripture, we see that fruit is used to describe a variety of things. For example, it describes new converts. It describes, or it's used to describe uh, the fruit of our lips as we give thanks to, um, to our Lord. It describes uh, the attitudes and actions that we are called to live out, the fruit of the Spirit. There's also the fruit of money that we are to give to the church for the advancement of the gospel, the fruit of peaceful, righteous living, and so forth. And so he prays that these kinds of things will characterize these dear saints in Colossae, with all this chaos going on that's being kind of brought into the church with, with new believers and false believers and false teachers and all of the stuff they have swirling all around them, which, by the way, is no different than what we have today. Some of the issues may be a bit different, but it's the same lies. Satan doesn't care what you believe as long as it's not the truth. And he's got a whole smorgasbord of junk out there that sounds very compelling so he's praying here that the saints will bear fruit in every good work. One of the things that, that I have always enjoyed, because I hadn't been around them a lot until I moved to California, but I, I was able to see vineyards. Now, I had seen some in gardens here in Kentucky and Tennessee, but I'd never seen really big vineyards. There's one up here in Clarksville that, that's fairly big, but... but but as I, as I walked through them, and especially when I've been in Israel and seen vineyards, it's really an impressive thing. But how sad to see a fruitless vine on a, or a fruitless branch on a healthy vine. The same is true when we witness a professing Christian that bears little fruit. Something needs to be done with that, with that branch. There's something wrong with that branch. And as we look at it here, in, in the context of Paul's prayer, what we can see is that branch is not filled 
with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. They're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, and they're not pleasing him in all respects. So, you want to ask yourself the question, am I bearing fruit in my life? I might even add, are you praying that you will bear more fruit in your life? Our passion at the church here is to make sure that we are doing all that we can to provide the proper kind of environment for you to bear fruit in every good work. But again, it all begins, it all starts, it all springs from a full and accurate knowledge of the Word of God. And as we look at other passages of Scripture, that has to also be followed by godly shepherding, discipleship, accountability, and especially your own willingness to be diligent to put into practice what you know to be true. Now, there's all, there are also times where you will see people that have a great grasp of the Word of God. I was around that especially in academia. But their spiritual fruit is bitter to the taste. It's sickening to the stomach. They're hard to be around. People are repulsed by them rather than being drawn to them. So just because you have a great grasp of Bible theology, for example, doesn't mean that you are necessarily walking by the Spirit and bearing fruit. In some situations, this is so severe that a person needs to examine that if this is the pattern of their life, they really have no basis from which to claim genuine saving faith. In fact, in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19, we read about the opposite of bearing fruit, and that's bearing the, I should say, living out the deeds of the flesh. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and he gives a list. And if this is the pattern of a person's life, especially when they have a vast knowledge of the Word of God, there's something seriously wrong. They include things like immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is Paul's earnest prayer here, that the saints will bear fruit in every good work. This should be our prayer as well. But there's even more. The fifth virtue that he prays for is that we will be increasing in the knowledge of God, there in verse 10. By the way, the grammar here in the original language indicates that it is the knowledge of God that produces increasing measures of spiritual growth. Whatever current level of your knowledge of God might be it is not enough you realize that there's so much more your knowledge must increase you never come to a place where you say oh I have finally arrived and what's fascinating is the more that you know him the more you learn about our glorious God the more you realize how little you know isn't that interesting and <laughs> the more passionate you become about this right here, increasing in the knowledge of God. I was thinking about this when I meditated upon this passage. 
you know, like no other person perhaps in the history of the world, the Apostle Paul knew God. I mean, you think about it. He, when, when, when he was saved, he, he repeatedly received direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Having the Lord himself teach you? Talk about a pastor and a Sunday school teacher and a discipler. And then we know, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 4, that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And yet with this intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read how he still strives to increase this knowledge more and more. For example, in Philippians 3, 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of, here it is, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The idea of knowing him more and more and more and more. And later he prays in verse 10 of Philippians 3, that I may know him. So I ask you, are you increasing in the knowledge of God? It has been my experience over the years, having dealt with thousands of people who have spent their life in church, that for the most part, you could take a person who has spent the majority of their life in church and give them a test about their knowledge of God, and it would be quite embarrassing. For example, if I were to ask them to define just five attributes, just five, just take five attributes of God, I would like for you to define them biblically, go to the Word of God, discuss them, and explain how those attributes relate to God's glorious plan of redemption and how they specifically impact you in your life and your ministry. And unfortunately, many times when I start talking like this and ask people to begin to interact that way, they have this look on their face like a mule staring at a new gate, as we would say here in Tennessee. It's like, you want me to what? Well, wait a minute, you've been in church all of your life. You've taught Sunday school. You've heard thousands of sermons. Do you mean to tell me that you cannot interact from Scripture over five attributes of God? Explain them? Describe how they work themselves out in God's glorious plan of redemption, how they impact your life, how they impact your ministry. Is there nothing about these that causes you to just celebrate and at times weep? You see, friends, the Apostle Paul knew that this is going to be a problem for all of us. So this is why he prays, that they would increase in their knowledge of God. Folks, again, is this your prayer for yourself, for your husband, for your wife, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? If not, why not? May I lovingly be so bold as to answer that question? It's because it's not a priority. We live in a culture of misplaced priorities. All we have to do is look at our calendar, how we spend our time, 
look at our checkbook, checkbook and you will very quickly get a clear read of what your priorities really are. So again, Paul knew the same thing was going on for those early saints, and so he prays for them. As I pray for you, as I pray for myself, as we need to pray for each other. And the sixth virtue is the result of this full and accurate knowledge, and that is that we would be strengthened with all power. Notice verse 11, he prays that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Now, folks, this is really exciting, so listen very carefully. This is a prayer for the power to persevere come what may in your life. We never know what the next phone call is going to bring. We never know when something of great difficulty is going to come into our life. So this is the power to endure no matter what the cost. This is a prayer for the power, if you will, of divine enablement. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that it be unleashed when we strive to know and live out the will of God. It's interesting, he says, this is the power according to his glorious might. As we look at the language here, we see that this speaks directly to the jaw-dropping, terrifying radiance of deity, which is the physical, visible manifestation of God in theophany, when, when God, who is spirit, would manifest himself. It's the kind of power... He's praying for the kind of power that was put on display at Mount Sinai. All right? The kind of power that could be seen in the glorious Shekinah that hovered over the mercy seat between the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later in the temple. The type of power that, that burst forth from the body of our Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what he's praying for that we would be strengthened with that kind of power according to his glorious might. So this is the transforming power, my friends, that produces the splendors of heaven. This is the power we need and the power that we have available to us. Do you realize that? And for what reason? Why is this important? For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Well, what does this mean? Well, it's speaking of being able to persevere in trials. But the language is interesting. It says, first, for the attaining of all steadfastness. This speaks of having the ability to patiently endure difficult circumstances in our life. And the term patience speaks of being able to patiently endure difficult people, to be long-suffering with people. One scholar put it this way, it means, quote, to maintain a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune without complaining or irritation, end quote. We all kind of smile, don't we? Yeah, we really need power when these things come up, and they do. You know, think about it. Paul knew better than, than any of us the importance of this sixth request because he was 
constantly under attack. Constantly. He was forever dealing with false teachers. He had unbelievably harsh critics from within the church. He speaks of selfish, uh, ambitious people seeking power and profit in the church. All through the New Testament you read about about disunity. It's a never-ending problem. And then you add to all of that his Jewish countrymen that are trying to kill him. So he knew how important it, it is to have this kind of power. In fact, anyone in any form of legitimate ministry is going to cry out that they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And then all of this leads to the seventh and final virtue for which he prays. That we would joyously give thanks to the Father. And this is such such a capstone on all of this. There's really a crescendo here that comes to this final point. Notice at the end of verse 11, the word joyously. I believe it's linked to the following phrase here, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Folks, here's why a full and accurate knowledge of God's will in his word is so crucial. So that despite the circumstances of life, despite the difficult people that we will endure, we will still be able to be filled with joy because of our present position and possession. Now let me explain this. God the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Fascinating term. It means that he has authorized us. It means that he has made us fit, made us suitable, made us sufficient. Think about it this way. He has qualified the unqualified. How so? Well, he's given us a new nature. He's given us the righteousness of Christ. He's given us that which we could never do for ourselves. He has provided for us the necessary prerequisite to be able to enter into his holy presence. This new nature, the righteousness of Christ, this is a supernatural qualification. This is what makes us eligible to receive our share in the inheritance. By the way, that phrase is derived from the concept and the words that are used in the Old Testament to describe, to describe the distribution of the promised land to the various people of ancient Israel. That they each had a specific individual portion or allotment in their inheritance. So let's understand this. He's saying that every believer has their own, quote, share in the inheritance. By the way, in the original language, it, it reads their portion of the lot. In fact, the grammar indicates that we all receive our own individual allotment, our own individual portion of the overall inheritance of the saints. So every believer has his or her own share in the inheritance. So why the long face when you experience the trials? the things in life that don't go your way, the people in your life that don't like you, don't want you, don't love you. 
treat you wickedly. In light of all of this, he's saying, hey, joyously give thanks to the Father because of what he's done here. He's given you a new nature. He's given you the righteousness of Christ. Peter talks about how that we have been made to, 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 have, to be partakers of the divine nature. Righteousness is our present possession. Peter understood this so well. He said in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 4, We have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you, don't you love it? Greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, folks, remember, although we are not perfect, God is pleased with us because we are united to Christ. Therefore, we have been qualified. We have been fitted for our inheritance. A good way of thinking about this is to think of an embryo. A little embryo in a mother's womb is not yet a fully mature man or woman, right? It, it hasn't happened yet, but it is qualified. It is authorized. It is made suitable to become fully mature. All of the DNA is in place, right? It's a beautiful analogy when you think about it. There is nothing else required of that child, of that embryo. In fact, there's nothing else that anyone could do to produce what God has already made and what he is ultimately going to bring to fruition in their maturity. There, there's not a thing. That child is qualified. He is made ready. Well, the same is true when we are born again. When we are born again, we are instantly qualified. We are instantly made suitable for the kingdom of God. There is nothing else required to bring us to perfection. It's an amazing thought, one that should cause us to celebrate. When we are born again, we are at once adapted. We are fitted for heaven. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has made us ready for our portion of the lot. And he speaks here of this idea of the inheritance of the saints in light. You know, that's where our departed loved ones are right now. They're in the light of God's glorious presence. But we are to thank the Father for this. The Father who has made us fitted for this, qualified us for this. James speaks of this in James 1.17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now think about it. The Father sent His only Son, who is the light of the world. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. John saw the final eternal light of Christ 
in which we will all bask with all of the saints one day when he saw the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Beginning in verse 22, he says this, And I saw no temple in it. By the way, the reason for that is the new Jerusalem will be the Holy of Holies. 1,500-mile cube. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Folks, again, why the long face? We joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us for all of these amazing truths. That's Paul's point here, to give thanks to the Father, not only for granting to us such a glorious future in his kingdom of light, but also for delivering us from the horrors of the domain of darkness. Notice the stark contrast in verse 13. He says, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Let's pause there for a moment. The term deliver, it, it has in the original language the idea of drawing to oneself or rescuing. It, better even to say to be snatched from something. Certainly it doesn't mean that we're liberated from the domain of darkness. Because when we were lost in our sins, we had no desire to be liberated. We loved darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We had no desire to be liberated, nor did we deserve to be, but God comes along and he plucks us. He snatches us from this domain of darkness, like snatching Lot from Sodom, like a brand from the fire. And then he says he transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son. He moved us from one place to another to the kingdom of his beloved son. Literally in the original language, the son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, Paul wants us to joyously give thanks because it is the Father who has made us fit for the kingdom which he gives to the son of his love. And because we are united to him, in his love, we become joint heirs with Jesus. The Father has snatched us from the spiritual darkness we loved, where we groped about in a fool's paradise. That darkness where the spiritually blind cannot see, even if they wanted to. That darkness that lulls sinners into an eternal sleep. That darkness where even the light of his grace is blind unless God does something. That darkness that would become the terrifying reality of our permanent abode were it not for what the Father did and the Son and the Spirit. Think of the solitary confinement of hell where the only light that those will see who enter that place will be the light that will burn forever in their mind's eye 
as they think upon that great white throne where they saw the light of the glory of God in Christ who could have been their redeemer but was their judge and executioner. Those people whose love he, they spurned they mocked his gospel but not so for the souls that the Father qualified that the Father delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into this kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption by the way that magnificent term <laughs> it speaks of ransom it speaks of emancipation it speaks of being emancipated as slaves from the penalty power and one day the presence of sin again through Christ the payment was made in full we have been redeemed first Peter 1 18 he in 19 he speaks of how you, you were redeemed by the precious blood of the lamb you know, as I was thinking about this, my, my mind went to the words of that blind hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, who saw this spiritual truth with perfect vision and was thereby compelled to put pen to paper. And she wrote the words of that great hymn. First verse says, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Dear Christian, this is what we have to rejoice about. We joyously give thanks to the Father for all that He has done and to our Lord Savior for all that He has done. Now, for some of you, this may all be quite foreign. Perhaps you're groping around in the darkness today and you have doubt you wonder if you've really ever been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son and if so I wish to offer you this morning the, the knowledge of the will of God I would plead with you to place your faith in the living Christ trust in his blood and his righteousness and the father will snatch you from the power of darkness and you too will be qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light well there you have the outline of Paul's prayer a model that speaks directly to the spirit's desire for all of us but I want you to see the big picture here folks the big picture here is the importance of prayer not just the specifics of it but the importance of prayer disciplined fervent private persistent prayer our fifth pillar and we've given you I think in your bulletin and even on the overheads some of the strategic objectives of this particular focus of our church that we want to implement more and more and you'll be hearing more from Ken Kerr on these things we want to train our men and women on the difference between the common contemporary prayer activity and biblical boldness in prayer. 
Secondly, to encourage believers to spend time in private prayer modeled after biblical examples of men and women who communed with God in prayer. We want to encourage believers to join in public prayer during Wednesday evening prayer services, adult Bible fellowship classes, uh, fellowship groups, corporate worship, so on. Fourthly, to encourage a network of prayer throughout the week. Fifth, to encourage families to pray together for the glory of God to be revealed in their lives at home, work, and church. Number six, encourage families to pray for God's work in our church and around the world. Number seven, to encourage full participation in the annual fall season of petition and praise. Number eight, to develop a culture of intercessory prayer. And finally, to utilize the prayer request link for members on the church website. Beloved, we have much to pray about here at Calvary Bible Church, much beyond these sevenfold virtues that we've examined. May I, in closing, remind you to just pray for the lost. We have many of them, even who are a part of our church, especially many of our children. We have family members. We have friends in our community. Secondly, pray for the ministries of the church. You know, we're always under attack. The more effective the ministries, the greater the opposition. Pray for just the expansion of our campuses into Nashville and into the Mount Juliet, the kind of the northeast Nashville area. Where right now we, we, we need a place to meet. We need a place to meet on Sunday mornings where we can have an early service that would precede this service. We need funds for that. We need people. We need some of you who are willing to say, you know what, I want to be a part of that. We need help. We need advertising. Pray for the new soul care ministry, the discipleship program that Pastor Joe's putting into effect. By the way, one of the reasons why he's in, in, uh, in other places, Paris and Jackson, uh, two days a week, is because his salary is completely funded by a foundation in those areas. And out of honor to them, we want to do things to to help in those communities as well. But what we need to pray for is that God would grow this church and that God would burden people to help fund Pastor Joe's salary and other things that we need to do. You know, we're like so many families, especially uh, in this time of great difficulty with our economy. We, we've got a whole lot more need than we got revenue, right? And we try to squeeze our pennies as much as we can, but... We just need to pray for these things. We need to pray for our missionaries. You heard me pray for them. I, I have such a burden. I've talked with Elijah on the phone a couple of times this week. Uh, he, he was saying, for example, that, that right now he's got, uh, I think he said, 62 Sudanese refugees in the little area where he's living. They've kind of sought him out because they know of him. And he said most of them can't speak English. And their dialect isn't what they speak there in Kenya. And he says, I'm trying to teach them English. Is there anything that we can find on the website, uh, on a website that can have a curriculum for grade one through four English? And he said, we also need a couple of blackboards and some chalk. You know, just basic things. And we, play, we pray for William as he, you know, and his family have been removed now from Sudan. He's gone back. He's trying to... See, you know, they, both Elijah and Sudan have, and, um, and William have family members that are still hiding in the bush. They have no food. They have no shelter. Disease, um, famine are very serious for these dear people. 
So we need to pray for them and our other missionaries as well. I think Julie um, Parker has sent out something with respect to William. And we just want to continue to lift these people up because it's so easy to live out our lives in this little safe bubble in Middle Tennessee. And we have no earthly idea how most of the world really lives in the battle that is going on for the sake of the kingdom. We need to just pray for our overall giving, as I say, in regards to all of these things. But folks, pray that each of you, each of us, will get serious about prayer. That we will get serious about praying the things that we've studied here today. Praying them for ourselves. Praying them for other members of Calvary Bible Church. And then pray that God will soften all of our hearts so that we will become committed to the various prayer ministries and there, there will be something for everybody I know that for example not everybody can come on Wednesday nights but there's other ways you can get involved and so let's pray that we will all be committed to this fifth and most important pillar of Calvary Bible Church okay let's pray together Father thank you for these great truths that really expose the needs that we have as your people and the resources that we have as your people. Lord, may we be a church of prayer. Not just because we have so many petitions, but Lord, also because we have so much to praise you for, to give thanks for, and because we love to commune with you in a rich and intimate way. Lord, may we be people of prayer. I ask this with all of my heart for each one of us. Thank you, Lord, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0133.